You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. You said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like, when you do something like that, do you Yeah, think I think about, that's true. That's my opinion. Okay, but why share it? Why share it? Especially, <laughs> I mean... What a prick. He's, he's like, sounds like a schoolmaster. Why say that? I mean, come on, Elon. Come on, why say things like that? Well, why share it when people who buy Teslas may not agree with you? Advertisers on Twitter may not agree with you. Um, why not just say, hey, I think this. You can tell me. We can talk about it over there. You can tell your friends. But why share it widely? I mean, I, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say what I you want You absolutely are. But I'm trying to understand why you do, because you have to know it's got a, there, it puts you in, a, in the middle of a, the partisan divide in the country. It makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism. I mean, do you like that? I, you know, people today saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think you are. No, I'm definitely not. I'm, I'm, like, like, I'm like a pro-Semite, <laughs> if anything. <laughs> I, I believe that probably is the case. Yes. But why would you even introduce the idea then? But he didn't that introduce the idea. The case. I, I mean, look, we, we don't want to make this a, a George Soros interview. No, um, God, no. I don't, so, I don't want it uh, at all. But I'm, what I'm trying, even came up though in the annual meeting. I mean, you know, do your tweets hurt the company? Are there Tesla owners who say, I don't agree with his political position because, and I know it because he shares so much of it. Or are there advertisers on Twitter that Linda Yaccarino will come and say, you gotta stop, man. Or, you know, I can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the, the scene in The Princess Bride, 
great movie. Great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father. And he says, offer me money. Offer me power. I don't care. So you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say? I'll say what I want to say, and if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Okay. It's good. I like it. <clears throat> well, my reaction to Musk's statement there is I think that he's bristling at the idea that free speech applies to everyone but Elon Musk. Um, somehow, a, um, a very ideologically driven network that is very partisan in the public debate has the nerve to say to Musk, you shouldn't be partisan and you shouldn't be ideologically driven in the public debate, as we are. How dare you? They wouldn't have said that if he was pushing trans ideology. They wouldn't have said that if he was pushing Marxism. They wouldn't have said that if he was pro-Biden. They wouldn't have said that if he had chosen to quote, instead of Princess Bride, um, Obama. They wouldn't have said that at all. They only said that because they didn't like what he was saying. We believe in free speech unless you say something we don't like. We believe in free speech unless your speech runs counter to our own ideological position. That's what I think Musk is saying there, and I, I frankly agree with him. And I would agree with him, by the way, even if he wasn't saying something that I agreed with. I think one of the things that's changed in a very, very dangerous way in this country is I'll make a difference between liberals and Democrats and radical left, just to define my terms. <clears throat> by radical left, I mean the global left. Democrats, I mean those specific to this country. Liberals, um, which has traditionally been a, a term used in this country for, um, for Democrats, or for those on the left. Liberals, I will define this way. Old school traditional liberals were people who loved their country. They might have voted for Clinton or for, um, you know, for Mondale or Jimmy Carter or whoever, but they loved their country. They were patriotic. And they would fight for your right to say what you wanted to say. They believed in a marketplace of ideas. That is not where we are anymore. The Democrats of my father's day are very different than the Democrats um, of today. And it's a very, very dangerous change, a very dangerous shift. So, and I think Musk senses that, and he's tweeted, I mean, you talk about some of the more interesting tweets are not the tweets about Soros, is he has tweeted more than once that he believes, and this will sound like hyperbole to some, that the future of civilization depends on free speech. I think, I think he meant it when he said that's why he bought tw Twitter, is he felt like it's not necessarily, a, he, he wants it to make money, but that's not why he bought it. I think if it breaks even for him, I think he's okay with that. I think he bought it because he really believes the future of civilization depends on it. Well, I think that he readily perceives that, I don't know if you've seen it, but just recently, um, Mark Cuban 
decided to chastise. Uh, let's pause for one second and let me look at my phone again. Because if I didn't tweet, if I didn't tweet my response to Mark Cuban, I'm going to right now. Um, I don't know if you've seen this yet or not, but uh, Mark Cuban, another billionaire. So this is an argument between three billionaires now. And they're silent participants in this discussion. Bill Gates, you know, lingers out there and is yet to be brought in, <clears throat> excuse me, to this discussion. But Mark Cuban tweeted this after the interview that Musk gave to, I think, was that CNBC or MSNBC? Anyway, whoever it was, Cuban said this. Sounds very reasonable, very shark tankish. Everyone has access, but Elon Musk has the ultimate reach and control. Who he supports or denigrates is the Twitter equivalent of state intervention. He owns the platform. He can do what he chooses. But it's disingenuous to say Twitter is the home of free speech when he chooses to often put his thumb on the scale of reach. It's a difficult position for him to be in. He's opinionated, and he has every right to be and to tweet as what he damn well pleases. But rather than saying Twitter is the home of free speech, I wish he would just call it like it is. Twitter is his platform, and he is going to use it to support and influence the positions he wants to support and influence. <clears throat> now, what I find disingenuous about Mark Cuban's comments is, did Mark Cuban express this level of hand-wringing angst? under Twitter's old regime, where they were pushing, quite literally, pedophilia. Child molestation. They platformed knowingly, which leads to tra child trafficking and, and heinous abuses. Did Mark Cuban express these kind of concerns then? He's moralizing, like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. And it's, a, it's a difficult difficult moral question of what Elon is doing. Oh, oh my. We know, it's interesting that he uses the term putting his, his thumb on the scale because that's the exact language Musk used in saying what the left did. And he said, we are taking, at Twitter, we are taking our thumb off of the scale. And I think Musk... I suspect his latest Twitter, excuse me, his, his latest hire, the woman as CEO, um, I'm trying to remember her name, Yaccarino, I think is her name, um, Linda Yaccarino. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. If I'm not, Linda, please forgive me. But I think he hired her because he was becoming sensitive to the criticism that it was just a ghetto for conservatives now, that all the liberals were gone and it was now just to get, let's just say it is. Is there any other place in major media that could be called, quote unquote, a ghetto for conservatives? Is there any other place in conservative media, excuse me, in media where we could say conservatives even have a voice? MSNBC, CNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, BBC, NPR? No, none. Where they even have a seat at the table. And by the way, I know this because as a freelance writer, I used to publish or do television or do radio with, I think, all of them. And now, it's impossible. It was hard then, a decade ago. But now, or let's just say pre-2016, when Obama came along, the game changed. Um, there, there was a definite thumb that went on the scale and it became difficult 
for me to do what I just do for a living, which would be to go on places like CNN and offer a conservative opinion. And I was just, I was kind of the token conservative that was allowed to say something. And in the, in the sea of radical leftism, I was a drop that they permitted to come on and have a bit of their airtime. And then often when you went off air, they would you know, immediately trash you <laughs> afterwards. You weren't even there to defend yourself. Now you don't even have that. So Musk comes along and says, guess what? At Twitter, we're going to do this. We're going to make it a place of free speech. Left, right, everybody. It's a marketplace of ideas. Everybody can say what they want to say. So now you have guys like Mark Cuban who come along and go, oh, why this is such a difficult moral problem because now... Look what's happening, what Musk is doing. He's putting his thumb on the scale where Musk said, I'm absolutely not putting my thumb on the scale. I'm just letting the chips fall where they may. But even that to the left is intolerable. That to them feels like a thumb on the scale and it's because you are not allowed to question them ever. That one of the things that I find in my world, and I listen, I've... In some ways, people position me as a debater, and I don't think of myself as a debater. I've done a lot of public debates, but I don't think of myself as a, as a debater. But I do take seriously Paul's injunction that we, the Apostle Paul, the Paul, who said, we demolish arguments and every lofty pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I am... In terms of my mission statement for life, I demolish arguments. That's what I live to do. And I construct them. So I not only demolish them, I construct them. And all for the purpose of pointing people to the cross. Just so you know, that's where I'm coming from. I consider all else to be a, a lofty pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. And I do that out of compassion because I think all those ideas, they're like kudzu. If you live in the South, you, you have to know what kudzu is. It, it, it grows out over, it's the viney thing that grows like a foot a day in our humid summers. And it, it obscures the path that leads to salvation. And you may think that's not what you want, but it really is ultimately what you do want. And I see it as my job is I take a machete every day and I'm whacking away at the kudzu that obscures your ability. I can't make you walk the path, but I hope I can help you to see it. And the Mark Cubans of the world, and by the way, I kind of like Mark Cuban. He's not a bad guy. I think Mark Cuban is generally well-intentioned. He's, he's definitely not George Soros. But Mark Cuban here is, I think, looking for approbation, for affection, for a pat on the back, a, oh, Mark, thank you for your high moral standard and for being willing to call Elon out. Please, this is a gutless tweet, Mark. This is a cowardly tweet. This is, forgive me, it is a kiss-ass tweet to the left because you don't like you don't like that Elon Musk has, and you know he has, taken his thumb off of the scale, and he hasn't put it, he hasn't, he hasn't uh, um, rigged the outcome in favor of conservatives, far from it. I mean, again, look at the woman he just hired. She's a World Economic Forum member. She is, in my opinion, a bit of a whack job. She's somebody that presumably you would hang out with. George Soros would. 
probably funds her. <clears throat> but you just don't like fair play because what you consider to be a level playing field is a playing field where conservatives are not allowed on the field at all. That to you. You, you want a ghetto. You want to shove conservatives into the ghetto. You want to create a kind of a modern ideological Jim Crow. That's what you want. You don't want them to vote. You don't want them on your, uh, in your neighborhoods. You don't want them on your buses. To the back, you ideological Rosa Parks. That's what you want. And then you say, when we have that, that's fair play. That's nonsense. And that's not what America is based on. And so when I hear Elon Musk saying, quoting, <laughs> kind of funny, quoting uh, Princess Bride, and there are many other lines in Princess Bride, by the way, that are worth quoting. But him responding here, I don't think Musk is saying he doesn't care. And that is the way it will be framed, is that Musk, Musk is the joker. He's the guy who wants to burn civilization to the ground. No, it's, it's George Soros. He's the guy who wants to do that. <clears throat> I think Musk is, is realizing in this conversation that I'm not going to throw any more pearls before swine. You're going to frame whatever I say the way you want to, and you're going to, you're going to soundbite it the way you want to. You're going to quote me the way you want to. You're going to, you're going to try to make me look like I'm saying what you want me to say. I think Musk cares very much to the tune of at least $44 billion, which is what he paid to, to purchase Twitter, all for the purpose of free speech. But I do think that Musk is a guy that, that needs support. I think he needs prayer. Um, I think that Musk, because he's not ultimately a Christian and therefore not rooted in any absolute, he's a bit, he's, he's more sail than anchor. And that's problematic. Why does Musk call Soros evil? Let me tell you something about Soros that Musk probably knows, but maybe he doesn't. George Soros was a student of a philosopher by the name of Karl Popper at the London School of Economics. Popper was an enormously influential philosopher. Again, kind of like Peter Singer. He was a guy that, that had a um, just massive influence on the post-World War II world. And some have painted him as a very evil character. I don't personally think that he is. I think he is, his philosophy was an overreaction to World War II and to the Cold War that followed. But his philosophy went something like this, so that you can, you can get a framework for how he thought. In the aftermath of World War II, Soros had decided excuse me, in the aftermath of World War II, Popper had decided that the war was the result of what he called two historicist ideologies. And historicism is this idea that history is predetermined, that is moving irresistibly in a particular direction. We could say in some sense that Christians are historicists. We believe we're moving irresistibly from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Well, you see, Marxists believe that, here, that, that history is moving irresistibly towards communism, you know, towards these various stages of, um, of, of class warfare. And the fascists believe that it was a war of the blood. It's racial war, not economic war, and that it's moving in a particular direction as well. And he said, look, in order for democracies to sustain themselves, there must be a permanent uncertainty about who has the truth. Because anyone who claims to have the truth is a potential tyrant. And so 
he would work off of the philosophy, the general, uh, excuse me, the German philosopher um, Lessing, who would retell the story of the three ring parable. The three ring parable comes from Boccaccio's Decameron and it probably has roots that go back to uh, before Christ. But the three ring parable in brief was this idea that a, a father had a magic ring and that whoever possessed that ring would be loved by God and man. Problem was he had three sons and he loved all of his sons. And in the course of his own lifetime, of their lifetime, when he was alone with them, his love for them flowed so strong that he accidentally promised each of them the ring. So he had a dilemma. Each son was expecting to inherit the ring. So he had a artisan craft two false but identical rings. And then he bequeathed to each of his son a ring. And they wanted to know who possessed the real ring. And they were not told. Let each one believe that he alone possesses the magic ring and show forth tolerance to his two brothers. Now, Boccaccio, when he was, you know, when he's relating this story is during the Crusades, and Lessing is telling the story during the Enlightenment. But the idea was the three major religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Who, which, which one is the real ring? Which one is true? It's a danger for any one of them to think they have the truth. Let each one of them believe, but show forth tolerance towards the other. So he's calling for tolerance. Let's stop slaughtering each other in these wars. Forward to Karl Popper. Popper is saying essentially the same thing. We can't know who has the truth, or even if there is transcendent truth. So let's show tolerance to one another. The problem with that philosophy is, of course, it throws the baby out with the bathwater. It even does an end run on even pursuing, even trying to discover who has the truth. And it isn't, that a, isn't that a pursuit in and of itself? That's, isn't that a crusade, a, a quest that's worth undertaking to discover the truth? I personally undertook that quest in my high school years. I want to know what was true. I don't want to go around, you know, uh, um, my life based on nonsense. I want to be based on the truth. So this was Popper's ideology. And he wrote about it in two volume works called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And the enemies of the open society, the open societies are democracies. And the enemies of open societies are those people who say, I know the truth. Adolf Hitler claimed I had the truth. It's racial. Stalin said, we have the truth. It's economic. Those are enemies of the open society. They're, they're enemies of us all. They're enemies of free people. So democracies must always kind of affirm everybody's truth is equally valid. And this is, leads to the recreation of the Roman pantheon. I was just in Rome, standing in front of the Roman pantheon, I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago. Walked by it every day for three months and ponder its significance. You know what, it, what Pantheon means? It means Hall of the Gods. Hall of the Gods. So when the Romans conquered your territory, 
They would take your God. They say, look, we'll worship your gods. You keep them. We'll put them in there. In the hall of the gods. We put their statues in there. You go in there and see them whenever you want. Worship them. We'll add them all. But whether you worship them or not, you must absolutely worship our God, which is the emperor, which is to say that he is the embodiment of the state. Have you seen how problematic this is? So that in the second century AD, Pliny the Younger, who is governor of Bithynia, modern-day Turkey, a part of modern-day Turkey, ruled by the Romans. He writes to Emperor Trajan. Trajan was deemed to be a good emperor, by the way, a moral, decent emperor by their standards. And he writes to him and he says, you know, this, there's a contagion that's sweeping the countryside. They follow a man named Christ, Jesus, who was executed by our people some time ago. We heard they were cannibals. Why do you think they thought they were cannibals? Because of the Lord's Supper. They'd heard they, they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their God. And he said, we investigated and found that they had ordinary simple feud of a common nature. They weren't guilty of that. But we are told that they cannot worship any other God but their own. So when we arrest them, we have been putting your image, dear Trajan, in front of them, and we tell them to worship it. And if they refuse, we tell them a second time. It's a very famous letter, this correspondence. And if they refuse a second time, we execute them. If they worship it, then we let them go. Are we following a course of action that you endorse? And Trajan's reply is quite brief. He says, it sounds to me like you're following a wise course of action. Proceed. You see, Francis Schaeffer, a generation ago, he said this. He said, Christians are by nature rebels because no totalitarian or authoritarian regime can tolerate a people who say that they have an absolute universal standard by which all men and their governments are judged. Christians will always say that there is a law that is higher than that of the state. Romans had no problem with pantheists. They had no problem with people who are willing to worship. If you're willing to worship the Trajan, in addition to your local deity, fine. Great. Hall of the gods. But see, the Christian God says, you will not worship me in an image. That's the second commandment. I will not be represented that way. That in of itself is actually quite fascinating because you see in Greek thought, words are abstract. In Hebrew thought, they're concrete. The idea of the word is significant. In Romans 1, he, the word became flesh or the way it was translated, say, by Calvin, the speech spoke into his creation, that the words themselves have power. What are we going to put in the hollow gods? We don't have, where's the image of your God? No, we don't have one. We don't do that. There were some of our people who did that once. It didn't work out very well. 
But not only that, we won't worship your other gods and we won't worship Trajan. We will not worship the state. And this is where we are now. Back to the philosophy of Karl Popper. We are now at this place where we are going to say that we are multicultural. We love all cultures. Whatever you want to believe is fine. Whatever gods you want to worship, fine. Whatever kind of sex you want to have is fine. But you will worship the state. See, this is what's happening in France in a big way. They're, the French are a little further along than we are in this conflict and in Germany because, you see, they've miscalculated who the Muslims really are. Muslims have a lot more in common with Christians than they do with, with the secular utopians because we believe in absolutes and the Roman, excuse me, the, well, the Romans didn't either, but the, uh, the secular elites don't other than the truth they create. So... Muslims believe there is an absolute truth. And here they come in to Western Europe where they're not told they have to worship the state, but that's the end result. In, in other words, you will be ultimately obedient to us above your God. And the Muslims are saying, no, nah, not going to play out that way. We're not doing that. We're going to create our own enclaves, which are now being called what? No-go zones throughout Europe. And we'll do what we want there. And we dare you to come in and try to stop us. And they won't. When, when there are calls from these no-go zones in London, in, um, in uh, Berlin, uh, in Paris, in Toulouse, for help, an ambulance will stop on the edge in the no-go zone and say, you bring them out to us. We're not going in there. Police don't want to go in there. These are real things. So what we're seeing is a clash of civilizations. And the clash has to do with the nature of truth. Is it real or isn't it? So Karl Popper had a deep influence on, on George Soros. And guess what the name of George Soros' foundation is? The Open Society. The same name as Karl Popper's seminal work is magnum opus, the open society. There's, this is not a coincidence. The thing is, though, is I think Karl Popper was very well-intentioned, and I think that Elon Musk is dead on in saying that Carl, excuse me, that um, uh, George Soros is hell-bent on destruction. I think he is. I think he's right in saying that he's a hater of humanity. I think he's 100% right in saying that he's evil. I think he is evil. He doesn't care of the little people he hurts in this. I promise you that he lives in a, um, in a state with, or multiple estates with armed guards. He is, this isn't going to affect him. If there's any square meal left to be had in his neighborhood, he'll get it. He knows this. Just by virtue of his money, he can insulate himself from the chaos his own policies are creating. And they're creating it all over the Western world. The Open Society Foundation and his son, who largely you know, runs it these days. The Musk says that um, because uh, Soros is quite elderly. Um, their philosophies, excuse me, their, um, their policies are ultimately chaos-driven. They know that in opening the borders of Western Europe and in the United States that it will lead to a rapid increase in rape. 
You know, Sweden has seen, I saw a headline a couple of days ago that said one in four Swedish women can expect to be raped. Now, I dug down into that data, and that don't, that's not an accurate statement. It's more like one in 20. But one in 20 is a lot, particularly when we're talking about a country that, that two decades ago, we're talking about one in 100. It was extremely rare. Now they have one of the highest rape incidences um, in the world. And it has to do with an open, open borders. That's what it's led to. That's what's happening in the United States. It's being driven by this. So I think Musk readily perceives that George Soros is driving chaos because he wants it. And why does he want it? Because he hates human beings. Whatever nice things he says whenever he's in interviews. Watch his interview where he's talking about working as a collaborator with the Nazis in his native Hungary. He did. The thing is that bothers me about the interview, a lot of people are harsh on him in that interview in a way that I don't think is fair, meaning he was a minor. And I think it's expecting an awful lot of a minor that he's going to become a leading member of the resistance. And he was involved in the confiscation, by his own admission, he's involved, this is a 60 Minutes interview, he was involved in the confiscation of Jewish wealth and their deportation. I would expect him to be giving that interview like, when I was a kid, I was made like a helper of these evil people that were doing these things, and I did everything I could to mitigate it, and it was awful and it was terrible, but I didn't. But he laughs throughout the interview. It's, it's an odd, his, his body language is very strange. I would be very sympathetic if he was made a part of something as a minor that he didn't really have any control over. But his manner is sociopathic. Watch the interview. You know, the whole open borders philosophy, first of all, that idea comes from, I don't even know that most Democrats actually even know what it means. They just know that, hey, if I advocate this, I hold this line, money goes into my reelection campaign, and I get to stay in government and ride around in nice cars uh, and eat nice state dinners. Um, I doubt most of them understand what's driving it, but it is Karl Popper's open society philosophy. And to give, to give more clarity as to what Popper meant by this, closed societies were what he called tribal. That is, they're people of a certain ideological, perhaps even ethnic um, homogeneity. They, 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 they hold the same views. Those are closed societies. Open societies are societies where there's diversity of opinion, and thus what he called the permanent uncertainty about who holds the truth. Because someone who says, I have the true doctrine is only a step away from becoming doctrinaire, right? Becoming a tyrant. So that, he said, was, um, was unhealthy. So we need, we need um, some sense of diversity, ideologically speaking, in order to create the open society. So to, to put this in real practical terms, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, I went, <clears throat> I went to, to Charlie Hebdo, the place where it actually occurred, 
And then I went to just a short walk away, the Bataclan. The Bataclan was where um, a heavy metal band was playing. And um, some Muslim terrorists walked in there with AK-47s and actual um, explosives. And they got up in the, the, uh, the balcony and started shooting down on people. They chained the door shut and started shooting people like fish in a barrel. Killed about 100 people, I think. Now, there were howls among Europeans to close the borders. But you see, the open society advocates who, they're ideologues. And ideologues are people who think ideas matter more than people. They're dangerous. Peter Singer is an ideologue. Adolf Hitler was an ideologue. Um, and the WEF, the World Economic Forum, is made up of ideologues. They're sure their ideas matter more than you do. And it's where you get a statement like this. You know, uh, Lady Astor, you know, asked Stalin, I think in 1931, she asked Stalin, when are you going to stop killing people? And he said, when it's no longer necessary. There was no sense of irony in answering that question. He wasn't trying to be sarcastic. He meant it. When you make the socialist omelet, you have to break a few eggs. You know, that's, and it's because ideologues see human beings as just raw material, brick and mortar for building the utopian state, whatever it is. And the open society advocates are like this too. So after Charlie Hebdo, the populations of Europe, and in this case, particularly Parisians, were saying, we've got to shut down the borders. Well, you know what those people were called? Populists. Populists, which has become kind of a term for the hairy unwashed, just a step away from being a fascist. Populism, by definition, is just the, the movement. It's a grassroots movement of ordinary people. It's usually a good thing. Populism, are the, the populace are not elites. The peasants, if you will. The non-ruling class. So listen to this. Listen to this statement that here was made by... Um, Judy Dempsey, a senior fellow at, the Car at Carnegie Europe, a think tank that provides policy recommendations to the European Union. This is what she said um, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. At stake is how to strike a balance between the open society and the defense of citizens. It will require steady nerves from all European governments not to bow to populists, Euroskeptic Euro and anti-Muslim movements that wish to batten down the hatches. Now, you know what Miss Dempsey is here saying? We don't care that you guys are getting killed because of our philosophy. You got to break a few eggs to make the EU omelet, to make the open society. So they're saying, in effect, Terrorism is something we have to be willing to endure to create the open society because they're betting that their secular philosophy will eventually win out, even if there's terrorism to begin with, that eventually their secular ideology will conquer Muslims who will, you know, kind of assimilate into the European open society. Well, now that philosophy has come to America. Now it's being pushed in our, our own country. And so where Soros, I think, and I'm speculating at this point with Soros, Soros himself said that he is very much a believer in the open society. 
And again, he was a student of Karl Popper, the author of the Open Society, quite literally, the author of the Open Society and its enemies at the London School of Economics. But I think the Soros takes Popper's philosophy further. Like I think, I think Popper had a moral core. I think it was a humane individual. And I, I can only speculate, but I suspect that Karl Popper would be horrified by what's happening across the Western world. And would, there's, there's two volumes to the Open Society. I think he might be issuing volume three and saying, listen, I would like to... to um, revise some of my previous statements because now I'm seeing it playing out in real time. It is not playing out the way I thought it was going to play out. I was trying to prevent Hitler's. I was trying to prevent Stalin's. Now we're, now we're moving towards it, but in, a, in just a very different way. So, but again, I can only speculate about what Karl Popper himself would say or do. One thing is absolutely certain. George Soros has given legs to the idea. George Soros has determined that Karl Popper's idea will have consequences, largely negative ones, to the tune of $32 billion that he has donated to the Open Society Foundation, his foundation, that is pushing all of this. And, and in an effort to create what I think he feels is necessary for the destruction of existing moral and political power structures. He's dumping money into local elections, which generally don't attract much attention nationally. Like he's putting money in, say, to the election of a mayor in Albany, Georgia, or a DA in Albany, Georgia, or a DA in Columbia, Missouri, or in Jackson, Mississippi. Not so much, let's say, the election of Hillary Clinton. Because he knows that he can change society bottom up. I can attack at the grassroots level and change society and sort of level the playing field for the immigrants who are pouring into the country who are <laughs> killing a lot of people and committing a lot of crime. But I'll see to it that my DAs go light on their sentences and punish the indigenous people. And in this case, we're the indigenous people. So I think that's what's motivating Soros. And I'm not sure that Soros himself, and again, I'm speculating, you know, Musk has called him an evil man. I, I agree with that. A person can be an evil man without knowing he's an evil man. Sometimes I think we, we mistake this. I have found myself in recent months, maybe, maybe for the last couple of years, I've been thinking on the proverb that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it only brings him death. You know, if, if you think on that, it's quite profound because our society places a premium on sincerity. We're willing to forgive an awful lot if you're sincere. But you know, you can be sincerely evil. And what I mean by that is I've been reading, I've been reading the strangest book. It is a book that is an attempt, published by St. Martin's Press, New York, no less, a very respectable publishing house. 
It is an attempt to rehabilitate Ava Braun, the wife of Adolf Hitler. You are a bold author to set out <laughs> to rehabilitate Ava Braun. And it's to do it on Me Too grounds. Now, the book was written in 2006. It was written, you know, Me Too really got started in 2017. But she's kind of, the author is portraying Ava Braun as a bit of a victim of Adolf Hitler um, and of her time. But she portrays her as a very nice and likable person. You can be a very nice and likable person and be evil. This is what happens to a society. Again, do, do ideas have consequences? Our society has dropped belief in the doctrine of evil. And so we assume that evil people always manifest themselves as, you know, with devils as pitchforks and horns. I read last summer several of the memoirs of Hitler's closest intimates. And do you know what they all had in common? They all loved Adolf Hitler. It's actually quite unsettling when you think about it. They said he was very generous, very kind, quite tolerant, told funny jokes, remembered your birthday. Always expressed his gratitude for the things he did for him. There is the problem of six and a half million Jews. But other than that, he was a very nice guy. We do posterity and injustice when we portray Adolf Hitler as an absolute maniac. We do posterity and injustice when we do that because we're telling them, you see, the, the evil people in society, they'll be blinking. You, you'll know them immediately because there's something different about them. They're warped and they're messed up and so forth. Not the case with Adolf Hitler. A lot of Western people who met him said he was charming, likable. Stalin, too. Mao, many have said that he was a, a devastating individual in person, his conversation and his conduct. The point is that evil, evil isn't, isn't just about views that are sincerely hold, held, excuse me, or, or whether or not you pick up the tab at the end of the dinner meal. It's about the things, the, 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 the state of your heart and how that comes out with malice towards other people. It may not be towards all other people. Hitler, by all accounts, loved children, not Jewish children. But he liked children, loved his dogs. If you weren't Jewish and you had a dog, he probably liked you fine. Loved Hollywood movies. But he was a killer. Such is the state of the, of the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We all want to paint Adolf Hitler's as grotesque manifestations, anomalies in history. 
because it makes us feel better about ourselves. I'm better than him. I would never do that. If Adolf Hitler had gotten into architectural school, he probably never killed a human being. How many potential Hitlers are there wandering around us? I would argue that there are plenty of them. If you see how people have behaved with a little bit of power they're given regarding mask mandates, recycling, you met the recycling Nazis? They're crazies. The stewardess on the plane who is, who is you know, uh, using her authority like a whip. The passenger on the plane who's doing the same thing. Imagine those people in positions of real power. What would they do? The people who are spewing hate all over social media, if they had the power to deport your family, would they do it? Probably. It's just that they don't. So we don't think of them or put them in the same category, the same class. George Soros, to me, is that kind of individual who... The way seems right to him, but it only brings him death. So I think he's, I think he is an evil man. I think the question a lot of people are really asking, but is he a nice guy? I don't care. Maybe, possibly, probably pick up the dinner tab if we were to go out with him. Probably have great stories. Probably be very generous on his yacht. Nah, don't worry about it. I'll pick up the bill for that. But he is an ideologue. And thus he thinks ideas are more important than people. And that's what an ideologue does. It's one of the things, by the way, that I liked about Christopher Hitchens. My relationship with Christopher Hitchens, I could have a good relationship with the late atheist journalist Christopher Hitchens because Christopher Hitchens... I think started as an ideologue, he definitely did not end as one. And he decided that the own ideologies that he had bought into, which were communism and atheism, but I repeat myself, they're the same thing, as he well knew. I think towards the end of his life, he decided they're not more important than people. People are more important. Friendship is more important. And I'm not going to force my ideology on other people. I won't do it. And that enabled us to have a, a meaningful relationship. George Soros is not, not that kind of figure. Um, Elon Musk is. I think Elon Musk is a guy that um, I've never met him, but my guess is if I did, I would disagree with him on quite a lot. His agnosticism or atheism, whichever it is that he ascribes to, clearly one of them, um, I don't think Elon Musk strikes me as a guy that says you have to believe what I believe. He's a guy that you could enjoy a cup of coffee or a beer with, argue with him a little bit, good-natured. That's not, that's not what animates the left these days. And it's definitely not what animates George Soros. So where is Musk coming from? Let's think a little bit about who Elon Musk is. Sometimes the people who appreciate America and what it stands for most are people who see it from the outside. Um, for instance, as I've said um, before, 69% of Americans have never been out of the country and the other 31% have hardly been anywhere. So when they're told by their media that America's an awful, racist, oppressive country, I think a lot of them believe it because they don't understand. 
But as somebody who's been in more than 60 countries, I can tell you I've never been in one, not one, that people weren't trying to get to America because they deem their own countries to be worse. And I would agree with their, their own you know, view you know, regarding that. So musky South African. Uh, South Africa is not a great place. It's an interesting place, not a great place. Massive corruption, violence, murder, you name it. One of the highest violent crime rates in the world. And when you are in a country like that, see, Americans assume, well, hey, if you work hard, you get ahead. Not in a country like that. And it's because at any moment, someone can come and with force of arms, take what you have. So Musk comes to America, and he is the embodiment of the American dream. The man has come and succeeded wildly to become, if not the, one of the wealthiest individuals on planet Earth. So quite naturally, he loves his adopted country. He recognizes America's inherent greatness and her historical goodness. So when he sees a guy like uh, George Soros coming along, trying to burn it all to the ground, or what the left is doing, I think that Sor uh, excuse me, I think that Musk instinctively reacts against that. He thinks, well, why would you want to do this? It's a good country. It's a good place to live. But another thing is that the left, which is pushing sexual chaos in addition to political chaos, pushing social chaos and underneath that umbrella, sexual chaos, um, his own daughter has been turned against him. And in one Twitter exchange, um, he talked about the left transing his daughter. And a prominent accountant replied to him, I mean, think of the evil of this said, and we loved doing it. We loved doing it. Think about that. We loved weaponizing your daughter. We loved perverting her. We loved desecrating her. We loved destroying her soul and turning her against you. So I think that Musk has a, as an ex, uh, you know, an exterior that suggests he's quite jovial and friendly and so forth. I think beneath that, there's a steeliness. And you saw it in that interview with, um, with the man who's asking him, you know, what is it that you're really trying to accomplish here? And he quotes, you know, Princess Bride. I think that um, Musk reveals just a little bit right there. Uh, don't misjudge me. Don't misjudge me. I think there's a lot of anger underneath there. And, and, and this is worth saying here. Scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. A lot of Christians assume that anger is an emotion that is a sinful emotion. God of the Bible got angry a number of times. Jesus tossed over some tables. Uh, he was angry. It's not to say that your anger is always justified. My point is, is simply to say that there are certain things that should anger us. And I think Elon Musk being angry over the transing of his daughter, that's something to be justifiably angry about. And uh, I suspect he's out um, to win an ideological battle here. That's the reason he bought Twitter. Why would you do that? Bill Gates had the money to buy it. He didn't do it. 
Soros doesn't, he's not, we think of Soros as in the same um, stratosphere, he's not. Soros is, Soros is a s small time, <laughs> Soros is a small time billionaire by comparison to guys like Musk and Bill Gates. But they're all using their wealth to push um, an ideology, each one of them. It's like, it's like being at the fair and you spray that water to push your car up. Who's going to reach the top first? Is it going to be Soros to get there, or Musk to get there, or Gates to get there? I don't know. I hope it's Musk. Well, another way to put ideas have consequences is that ideas matter. And they, they either lead to life or death. There's no in-between. Um, every, every, I used to have my students bring in advertisements. You know, tear one out of a magazine or... If you saw one on TV, uh, you know, write it down, quote it for us, bring it in, and we're going to discuss it. And it was my way of demonstrating that ideas have consequences. My way of demonstrating that every advertisement is pushing a philosophy. You deserve a break today is an old famous one at uh, McDonald's. Who says I deserve a break today? It's playing on a victim mentality. It's playing on the idea that I think I'm being mistreated. Twix. Two for me, none for you. <laughs> it's funny. And it's meant to be playful, and I'm actually not critical of Twix and that, but it's playing on inherent greed. It is pushing that ideology. And every advertisement, we're, we're, it's, it's like gamma rays are going through us. They just wash over us all day long. And if you think those things don't affect you, they do. And it's in the music you're listening to, I'm a guy who listens to the lyrics. If I can't understand the lyrics, you know, in my youth, you couldn't look them up. <clears throat> if they weren't included in the cassette box, you were just out of luck. You just had to guess. But in this day and age, you can look them up. And there's even, you know, now on your phone, you know, you just push the, you know, the little quote box and they'll scroll by. And I'm fascinated with the lyrics. What are they saying? What philosophy am I singing joyfully? It's too often I discover it's death. So I want people to understand that the philosophies that you adopt, they either lead you in the direction of truth towards life or they lead you in the direction of lies and death. There's no in-between. There may be degrees of it, but there's, there's no in-between. So I want people to understand that. And as I go around the world, <clears throat> my traveling around the world began with a basic assumption. If human nature is the same the world over, and every thoughtful person I know, of course, would say that it is, then how do we account for North Korea's? for China's, for Nigeria's, for South Africa's, for the degradation of almost the entire continents of Africa and South America, or for America. Why is America a better place to live than North? I mean, if human nature is the same, how do we count for the differences? Well, the answer is the ideas that those cultures absorbed. One was deeply influenced by the gospel. America's not a Christian nation now, nor has it ever been. 
we were founded on a mix of Judeo-Christian and Enlightenment principles, which are iron and clay. Not since the dawn of time has there been a truly Christian nation, but there have been those nations that are deeply, deeply influenced by the Christian faith, and none more than the United States. <clears throat> it's encoded into our laws, into our arts, into our literature. You can't hope to understand English literature, American literature, if you don't have some kind of understanding of the Bible. Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Who's Absalom? <laughs> well, you're not going to get this novel if you don't know that. Shakespeare. Countless biblical references. Can't get him if you don't know that. It has served as a foundation of Western civilization and America most of all. North Korea has been barely touched by the gospel. And guess what it's led to? Human degradation. Spiritual assassination of generations of people. All because of the absence of Christian thought. And I want to be clear, um, some would criticize me for this, so I, I want to define this. Christianity uh, is rooted in a person, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. But it has given rise to ideas. The idea of English common law is rooted in a Christian worldview. It's rooted in a statement like Jefferson's, who he wasn't a Christian, he was just deeply influenced by Christian thought, that it's better that 10 guilty men go free than an innocent man be punished for something he, you know, he didn't do. Did I say that right? Anyway, so I want people to understand that we are now slowly abandoning the ideas that have served as the substructure of our whole civilization. We're in the process of kicking those all out and saying we want to keep the stuff that it gave us. Civility and law and respect for law and certain traditions and uh, care for the environment, all that stuff. And what I'm trying to say is you, you can't have it that way. Once you kick out the foundation, the whole thing collapses. Or to quote T.S. Eliot, if Christianity goes, the whole culture goes.